Thank you, worship team, and good morning, everyone. Turn in your Bibles to either page 305 using these Bibles or 2 Kings, 2 Kings 16. Years ago, when uh, I was uh, visiting in Thailand, I was in a tribal village, and in that tribal village, you could go into any one of the crudely built wood houses, and you would find somewhere on a wall or in a corner an altar. On the altar, could be just a tiny little shelf, you'd find little dishes or maybe lids with some food in it for the spirits. And you'd usually find like a little statue of of Buddha. If you went into the cities, in front of the banks, the businesses, the schools, you would find the big Buddhas. And you would find uh, ornate, beautiful spirit houses on a pole with, with, with decorative shelves and food for the spirits put out each day, sitting out there in the hot sun where they would simply rot and decay. They were there because they thought somehow by bowing before and praying to these items and altars and somehow pacifying the spirits that their life would be better. They were all about making their life better and this is what they thought would make their life better. I'm guessing that in this room that there's no one who has a bronze Buddha that they bow to and you have no faith in the food that's decaying in the back of your refrigerator. But what do you think will make your life better? What What are you putting your hopes in to fix the problems as they arise? What is there that you instinctively trust in or turn to in distraction when, when things get hard? Well, we're going to learn from the 8th century B.C. King Ahaz what he did and what a bad choice that was because he found that what he trusted in crisis was idols or led him to idolatry. Ahaz is a sad story because he had so many spiritual opportunities to go a different spiritual direction. Last week, if you were with us, we studied his father, Jotham, who walked steadfastly before the Lord. That was his dad. In a future week, we'll be discussing his son, Hezekiah, who was also a godly king and a godly man. But sandwiched between these two godly generations is this king Ahaz, compromising, arrogant, evil, and idolatrous. And we need to dig into this spiritual tragedy to find some of the sober lessons that we need when we are tempted without physical idols to nonetheless be idolatrous. The first four verses of 2 Kings 16 are like a a summary, 
kind of a, a spiritual obituary, really, of this king Ahaz. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Pekah was the corresponding king at that time in Israel. This is about Judah's king. Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Pretty long term, but pretty short life, 36. Unlike David, his father, ancestor, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed, listen, sacrificed his son in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops under every spreading tree. Unlike David, his father is... The first description, well, his father means ancestor, and it really goes back some 250 years and some 12 generations of kings before him to find David. David was the gold standard of godly kings. God promised David that his line would continue, 2 Samuel 7, but he also promised that if any of his descendants strayed and abandoned the Lord, they would be disciplined. Ahaz was and Ahaz did. In fact, it says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So instead of following the example of David, the godly ancestor of of the king of Jerusalem, he's actually compared to the kings of the the, the, uh, divisive other kingdom Israel. And as we've talked about through these weeks, uh, 19 generations in a row, the kings of Israel, the name for the northern ten tribes, every one of them was evil. He He was following them, and the writer here, by comparing Ahaz to them, is intentionally insulting them to say, he was was more like Jeroboam and, and Ahab, who were kind of the premier evil kings. In fact, he did this unbelievable thing. He sacrificed his son in the fire. Now, this little summary at the beginning does not tell us where he started It really tells us where he ended spiritually. You don't start by doing that horrible thing. You you start with spiritual compromises. And so he's characterized as doing something so awful that he was really following the ways of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Six, seven hundred years before, back when Joshua conquered the land, God was evicting the pagans who were doing stuff like sacrificing their kids to the God of uh, God Molech. So we find him in verse 4 then, eventually, he is making his offerings at the high every place but the temple. We'll see why, but in the high places, the spreading trees, all these places that we've discovered along the way, the previous kings knew about but did not eliminate. Even his godly dad, Jotham, it says back in chapter 15, verse 35 last week, that he didn't remove, he did so many good things, but he didn't remove the high places. Certainly, Jotham didn't go worship at the high places, but he didn't eliminate them. There are some things that we need to get rid of for the sake of our kids. He didn't get rid of them. And so, indeed, for Ahaz, his son, going where pagans go, easily led him to do what pagans do. 
In fact, there's a parallel passage. We won't physically go there, turn there today, but we're going to look a lot also with some on the screen at some passages in Second Chronicles that fill in information we need. Second Chronicles 28.2 says he also made idols to the Baals. So it's almost like anything pagan Ahaz was in. So we kind of get his character. So how did he get that way? What's the process that leads us to this, this brazen uh, idolatry? Ahaz got there by the way he responded and reacted to crisis. Where we go in crisis is a serious testing point. Crisis is where we develop spiritual character. Without crisis of some kind, we will remain untested and undeveloped spiritually. Sometimes we talk about how kids really do need to play in the dirt and get some viruses to develop the immunities, to have the strength and health they need. Well, in so many ways, God knows what we need to struggle with too. So what was the crisis of King Ahaz? Verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Aram, a neighboring kingdom to the north, and this Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, also to the north, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. That's the capital where Ahaz is. And besieged Ahaz. But they could not overpower him, so they didn't, they didn't take Jerusalem. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the men of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. So from this reading in 2 Kings, we get the impression almost like they were kind of half victorious because it said they could not overpower them. It almost looks like a win, but actually we find that it was a horrible loss. The only thing they gained was the crown jewel of the kingdom. They, they, they did prevent them from taking Jerusalem, the capital. Because if you lose Jerusalem, you've lost everything. You don't even have a nation. So in that sense, it was a victory. They kept Jerusalem. But there's a lot more to this story in Second Chronicles because they suffered terrible losses it seems at the same time. Now, the merging the, uh, the kings and the chronicles account uh, is somewhat challenging. I, I think we understand it correctly. This needs to be the same battle, it seems, that they actually faced terrible losses. So you have Judah down here, Israel and Aram, and they come and they fight against Judah. They're taking on Judah. Okay, So that's where the battle is taking place. And they do not get Jerusalem but they do inflict some really serious losses. What's involved in those losses? Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. That's the capital of Aram. So they take many prisoners. What else? He was given also into the hands of the, kings of Is the king of Israel, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. In one day, Pekah, son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah. Awful human tragedy. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. What else? So defeated by two enemy nations. And Zikri, an Ephraimite, that's an Israelite tribe, an Ephraimite warrior killed Messiah, the king's son. 
So Ahaz loses his son. Azrakam, the officer in charge of the palace, is killed. And Elkanah, second to the king. The men of Israel took captive from their fellow Israelites who were from Judah 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a lot of plunder, a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. So some very painful personal losses. His, uh, his second-in-command and the officer, but most sadly, his own son. All these captives, there's, there's grieving throughout the nation. Why? The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Judah. So, discipline has come from God. God is seeking to humble the nation, the nation's on notice with all of these losses, and Ahaz paid his own price. How much sleep do you suppose Ahaz was getting these days? Fear had uh, certainly overtaken him. He was an evil man paying the price for his sin. He has to certainly be a, an emotional mess. It would have been a great time for him to cry out to the God of his father and his ancestors. What a great time to, to repent of sin and self and throw himself on the mercy of God and say, Oh God, I need your help. I've been going the wrong direction. But he does neither because Ahaz is committed to self and to sin, not to God and holiness. The direction of his life was all wrong and all it took was a crisis to expose it. When our heart is not set on holy living, we will not seek a holy God's help. Just the way it is. It would be mixing oil and water, but it is the character that comes out through these hard times. So he goes some other direction. And that other direction is what essentially becomes idolatry for him, for anyone. Verse 7. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent it to Uriah the priest, uh, sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest back in Jerusalem built an altar in accordance with all that the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus, and he finished it before the king returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. What a, what a fast path idolatry because he goes it says to seek help from Assyria, Assyria is not a ram so here's what seems to be happening so the nation has been under attack by Israel and a ram and here's a we're zooming out so that's the previous map and so what King Ahaz does is he goes to seek the help Here's a ram of Assyria and Tiglath-Pileser to come and help him against a ram. He doesn't seek God. He does what every other king would do when he's in trouble. Find an alliance with someone in the world. How did it work out? He sent servants. Go back to verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, 
This is, this, is, this is the process. I'm your servant and your vassal. Some of you have the word son, probably better. Come up and save me out of the hand of king of Aram and out of the, of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord, found in the treasuries of the royal palace, and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put resin to death. It seemed to work. The king of Assyria complied with the money that he got from the royal palace and the treasuries of the Lord. When we go someplace else for help, it sometimes works. That's the tricky thing. When our heart says you need to go someplace else for help, sometimes it works. Ahaz paid Assyria for help. But when you pay the mob, you never are quite done with the mob. When you pay them for protection, you're never quite done. And look at the pitiful way that he ends up groveling. I'm your servant, verse 7. I'm your son. If you go back to his first, 2 Samuel 7, when God promised David that I'm going to be with you and your descendants, I'm going to treat you, he said, like a son. You are, your, your descendants are going to be my sons. Ahaz is one of those sons, but he doesn't act like a son. Instead, he says to a pagan king, I'm your son. Who's he following? Very obvious. I'll be your servant. I'll be your son. And he trusted in this evil king. He trusted in the stolen treasures of Israel. How do you find out the spiritual direction of your soul? Where do you go in crisis? What do you do when you're fearful? Who do you talk to? Who do you listen to? When you research what catches your ear as the answer, Ahaz had no confidence in God who had been so faithful to his dad. That's the sad thing. He had all the experience in the world to lean on. His dad walked steadfastly with God, 2 Chronicles 27, 6. And then his dad was successful rebuilding walls and securing cities and fighting the Ammonites and, in fact, getting tribute from others. Instead, now we have Ahaz giving tribute to others because he ignored the God who blessed his father. If you've had the privilege of parents who trusted God, do you know this, their stories of God's faithfulness in their life? And what impact has that had on you? Is that kind of like, well, yeah, that's good for mom and dad. Or is that where you go? Our fears expose who we trust. And if you grew up with godly parents who in some way, in some way were learning to trust God, would you really trade in God's faithfulness for whatever you think your alternative source of help might be your your new wisdom our fears expose who we trust if only ahaz had read the psalms he'd have seen what his ancestor david wrote in psalm 56 3 when i'm afraid i will trust in you it's that simple or what another psalmist wrote in psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 
I lifted my eyes to the hills. Where, do my help come? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of these hills, the maker of heaven and earth. Because it is only as we are immersed regularly in Scripture that we will seek the God of the Scriptures for help. Ahaz had these Scriptures available, just as we do. He could... He, his palace was just steps away from the temple where the scrolls of the scriptures were kept. Surely some priest, some scribe would have, would have happily come and, and unfolded them and said, Ahaz, this is, this is what God's word says. But instead he thinks, no, I need power. And what kings do, and they need more power, is to go to kings with more power. But to get those kings power, I need money. Where am I going to get the money? I don't have enough money, so I'm going to go and steal it from the treasuries of the temple where God's people have been bringing it through the centuries. And he gives it to them. Our fears expose what we trust. I don't know what your fears are. Your fears could be, maybe as a Christian, persecution. We aren't, we aren't naive to what's happening around us, that Christianity is, biblical Christianity is, is losing its popularity and protections. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And if you're seeking to solve what you perceive as persecution some other way than the truth and the promises of God, then we're, we're seeking a false hope. Maybe you have uh, financial fears. Where does our help come from? Do you start with his word or simply scramble to get more money? Or do you, do you, do you grapple with, with God's principles of management, God's principles of contentment, God's principles of wisdom, God's principles of generosity? My help comes from the Lord. Emotional uh, anxiety, fears, very, very normal, very common. Where do we seek help? Do we, do we seek distractions to overcome our anxieties? Stay busy, um, indulge in uh, hobbies, buy something fun, do something harmful and hidden, binge Netflix, potato chips, whatever. What do we do? Relationship fears, some core relationship is, is struggling. Where do you go? We, we go to friends, which can be good if our friends will point us to Christ and the Word of God. But our tendency is to go to a friend who will simply support us in our selfishness and agree with us. In crisis, do we ask God seriously, what are you teaching me? How can you guide me? How can I throw myself upon your mercy and trust you? I've been impressed and really humbled in some recent months by some of y'all. There's been quite a list of serious health crises, family crises, losses. And I'm hearing faith. I'm seeing faith in ways that I would hope I would show in something similar. You are models to us, and I think it's evidence of God's profound work in your life and in our church family.
So as we read about Ahaz and its struggle with against Aram and uh, Israel, we see first of all the disciplines of God on them because of these great losses. You know what surprises me, and it shouldn't, is that in the midst of that, Chronicles tells us of a, an amazing display of God's grace in spite of Ahaz's sin, Judah's sin, where the story, we, well, the story is that all of these prisoners, hundreds of thousands, a couple hundred thousand prisoners have been taken, wives, children, and daughters. What's going on in this country? Of, of Judah, the, the, the unimaginable losses as, as Israel has taken all these captives. In steps the grace of God. Second Chronicles tells us, But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. So they're bringing back these captives. He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven, and now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves? But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? And obviously they were. Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. And they did. They did. The, the story goes on to say how they actually sent back all of the captives after feeding them, giving them clothes, healing balms, and the ones who were weak, they put on donkeys. So also, it's the Israelites who suddenly realize, wait a minute, we're messing with God's grace here. So we read about sin and consequences to Ahaz and Judah, but then we see that the nature of God is to relieve his discipline as soon as he possibly can. Like, like, like the perfect, as a perfectly heavenly father, he is both willing to discipline, but eager to withdraw discipline and show his grace. So how did Ahaz respond to this grace of God? When all these enslaved residents come back to the country and all these families are reunited. What a, all because a prophet went, Ahaz knew this. How does he respond? Did he respond with praise to God? Let's call a special convocation of praise and gratitude to God. That Look at what he did for us. Did he respond with Confession saying, oh God, I failed so horribly. I, 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 I went to Assyria when all I had to do was call upon you. That's not what he did. What he did is what we read in verses 10, 11, and 12. He goes to meet the Assyrian king that he had bribed, probably to pay tribute, and sees an altar in Damascus. Goes to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He sees an altar, sends the sketch to Uriah and says, build me one, and he does, and he brings it back. He goes home, there's this altar, and he starts worshiping on this false altar because his heart was unchanged by the crisis. His heart was unchanged by God's grace. God speaks to us both ways. He tries to speak to us sometimes through the crisis, say, please, please, please call upon me. When we don't, 
There's some consequences naturally or disciplined of God. And he withdraws it and, and shows grace. And then he's reaching out to us by his grace. Will you respond to me now, please? And a hardened heart still goes its own way. Why would he, why would he do that? Ahaz, why would, why would he resist? He, he seems to be riding high on the supposed victory. I, I kept Jerusalem, and, 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 and the captives have come back. So I'm going to build an altar like the one in Aram. Now, let's get, get a picture of this. If it doesn't seem to make sense, it's because it's illogical what he did. So he'd been fighting a ram who inflicted these heavy casualties because he paid to Assyria all this money. So now he goes towards Assyria to meet the Assyrian king Tiglath, and they meet in Damascus, which now Assyria has just defeated. Got that? And there is where Ahaz sees an altar. He said, oh, I really, really like this altar. Seriously? That's a loser's altar. Because Assyria has just beaten a ram for you. Why would you want a loser's altar? Totally illogical. But here's what he was reasoning. Second Chronicles. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus, Aram, who had defeated him originally. For he thought, since the gods of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me but they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. So his reasoning is evidently this. Aram originally defeated us, so their God must be great, even though Assyria defeated them now. Do you know how far we reach when we really want to do something? It doesn't have to be logical. It seems that Ahaz is just enamored with this Altar, period. I really like the way that altar looks. Have you ever shopped for something more, you know, major, like a, it could be a house, a car, uh, technology, a phone, appliance. And you're shopping, you're looking at all the different things, and you go, ooh, that is really cool what it does, okay? And at that point, all objectivity and logic flies out the window and the salesman knows he's got you. Because you are no longer thinking about cost, you're not thinking about what's, what makes sense. You just really, really want this. And I think that's what Ahaz wanted. You know, kind of, dad, 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 it's a really great car. You know, it does. Yeah. So he sends to Uriah the priest who builds it. And instantly our view of Uriah needs to bottom out because you wonder where, where are the priests of his grandfather Uzziah's generation who, who stood up to Uriah, Uzziah rather when he decided he wanted to go be a priest and altar make an incense altar offering and he builds it and he worships on it in fact, verse 13 and 14 then tell us about all these offerings. The burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, blood uh, fellowship offerings. He makes all these offerings now on this Aramean false god altar. So he's, he's making God's offerings from Leviticus on 
the false altar. What are you going to do with the old altar? Verse 14. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, that's the one that's supposed to be there, he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. He had an idea, I'm going to move it where I want it to be. What gives him the right to move God's altar? Go back to uh, 1 Chronicles 28, 12, and 19. God the Holy Spirit revealed to David, who told Solomon, what should be in the temple and where it should be placed. So God had given specific instruction. This is where I want the altar to be. Now we find Ahaz, all these years later, deciding where he wants it to be. You don't just shove God's altar to a new location in blatant disregard of the authority of God and his word. But his pride somehow, his pride at his quasi-victory over a ram, it was really Assyria who did it, seemed to vindicate in his mind his great wisdom, giving him somehow permission to do what he wanted to do because he was successful. One of the treacherous pitfalls of success is that we can assume we now have the formula for future success. Whereas the first success really may not have been a God thing at all. Even when we as Christians achieve highly, but without humility, we are actually in danger of a self-idolatry, kind of like I bow before my own invincible wisdom because now I know how everything's supposed to work and Ahaz seemed to have had this arrogance and he redesigns God's temple moving first the altar he does more after instructing Uriah the priest well let's pick it up in verse 15 King Uzziah King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar offer morning offerings this offering this offering this offering go to the end of verse 15 but I will use the bronze altar, that's God's altar, for seeking guidance. So I've decided to switch all of the regular offerings, sin offerings, fellowship offerings, over to my new pagan altar, but I'm going to keep the other one. I'm going to keep the other one for guidance. Assume, presumably, you know, guidance from God of Israel. Why did he even keep the bronze altar? It has to be one of two things. Either he left it there to pacify the Israelites who were already really questioning, why, what are you doing shuffling around the temple stuff? Maybe to pacify them, or maybe he actually really believed that he could worship the gods of Aram and the gods of Israel, the God of Israel, simultaneously. It's amazing how deceptive our mind Gets. We think we can have it both ways. Of course we trust God, we say, as we go to do exactly what our friend thinks, what our research showed, or something else contrary to what God's Word actually says. We, we can find a way to support what we want to trust. But we can't have it both ways when God speaks to something. Years ago, when I uh, first time I went to a uh, Larry Burkett financial seminar teaching biblical financial principles, I remember him using this phrase over and over. 
do we, or question, do we trust God or just say that we trust God? Do we trust God or just say that we trust God? And he was applying it to this foundational principle of, of financial giving. Because says, if you give financially to God, you have to trust God with what you now don't have. If we give to God first, we give to God faithfully, we give to God proportionally, like the Bible teaches, the mathematics says you will have less money. And you do. Which means you have to trust God, who said, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. That's what Paul wrote to the Philippians, who had been supporting him financially. He says, I'm so grateful for what's happening spiritually on your account. And he says, you can just relax because... My God will supply all your needs richly. Do we trust God? Or do we just say that we trust God? Same thing with time. The mathematics say that if you give time to serve others, you will have less time. And so you have to trust God with how everything else will get done in your life because you served somebody else. And on and on it goes that when we trust God, that there is, there is something about trust where, where it hangs in the balance that we do not know how this will turn out, but we know who will make it work. So we really don't end up trusting two things. We shift to trusting the other thing if we don't trust God, because you cannot do both. When you trust a person, when you trust a, a book, a blogger, a movement, an idea, that becomes our idol. And eventually you stop worshiping God altogether, which is how the Ahaz uh, story evolves. What else did he do? Verse 17, King Ahaz took away the side panels, removed the basins from the movable stands. This is all at the temple. He removed the sea from the bronze uh, bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord. Look at this. In deference to or because of the king of Assyria. He keeps moving and removing things from the temple. Why? Because of the king of Assyria. Is it because the king of Assyria said you should do this? I don't think so. It's because the king of Assyria was still requiring him to pay tribute. And so he had to salvage these things. Pay the mob. You'll never be done with the mob. Let's see what Chronicles says about this. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. In other words, again. He needs help again. Against who? Not a ram now. The Edomites had come again and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners, while the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills and in the Negev, which means south of Judah. So the Edomites to the east and the Philistines to the west and Philistines to the south are now all coming against him. He's only dealt with the the enemies to the north, and Assyria was able to help with that. How about with these enemies? Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. I'm not helping you anymore. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the officials and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. So now it seems that Tiglath-Pileser from Assyria no longer either is able or willing to help him with his enemies, but Assyria is still more powerful than Judah, and he's powerful enough to keep demanding tribute. Come on, keep giving it. 
And so we find Ahaz now is salvaging things to make his payments. It's all crumbling. In fact, it says Ahaz gathered together the furnishings of the temple of God and cut them in pieces. Finally, he shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn at sacrifices to other gods and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. Oh, that's how he eventually gets to where this chapter started, how he's worshiping at all these false places and sacrificing even his son to the false gods. All of these sacrifices or compromises he made have led him to finally shut the door to the Lord's temple. The temple treasures have gone to a ram. Seems like the basin, the canopy, now the furnishings are all going to the chop shop. And he sends everything off. And so after scrambling to pay Assyria for so long, he decides, I am no longer, I don't have much temple left. And he shuts the doors and doesn't even pretend to worship God anymore. He just resorts to pure idolatry. Verses 19 and 20 then tell us that uh, other events are recorded elsewhere. Verse 19 and verse 20, he dies. It's, it's almost like, honestly, the best thing Ahaz ever did for his country was to get out of the way so his son, godly Hezekiah, could come and take over. So he lived his life in fear of his enemies. Instead of going where his dad went for God's help, he did it his own way. Bribe Assyria, build an altar to a different god, pretend you're doing both, move God's altar, cut up the furniture, finally shut the doors, and go worship on the hills like pagans. Even to the extent, way back in verse 3, he sacrificed his son in the fire. It took him to the point where the pagans believed that if you sacrificed your children, you would give, get the favor of the gods, who are really demons, who are really laughing because they just fooled you into killing your kids. Who would kill their own kids? The battle for the lives of the preborn is a spiritual battle. And, and Satan comes as a thief to destroy. We will eventually worship whoever we trust. We are all on a long, lifelong journey of trust. Every, whatever season of life today finds you, is a season to trust God. Sometimes, often it's trusting him with difficult things. Uh, sometimes he's trusting us with blessings. And then we have to trust him with how he guides us with those blessings. But it is, I just have always seen that the, the, the Christian life is about learning to trust God instead of this, because someday we're going to be with God and we'll see that he was the one in charge all along. What Ahaz teaches us is that we what we love or trust instead of God actually becomes the idols we worship. This will make my life better. So what are your idols? What, what, what makes you feel better? What makes you think things will be better? 
I'm going to make some suggestions of areas that actually probably, there's going to be nine things. They're, the handouts are at the back if you want to, don't have to copy it all down. But you will find yourself in this list of nine things, maybe, maybe quite a few of them. Maybe you want to just even grade yourself with where you are from zero to ten. Is this really an issue with me or not? Timothy Keller said, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, that's an idol. In other words, it, it, it's, it's what you think about all the time. This, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is my longing. What we love or trust instead of God becomes those idols. So, the idol of approval. Whose approval do I hope validates my success? Sometimes there's that magic person. We're just looking for them to say, good job. Or maybe it's an everyone, like kind of in this whole people-pleasing mindset. The idol of free time. Hmm. This is my time. What absorbs my time off? What, in a given day, what absorbs your time? And what do you think you deserve to do? The, the living for the weekend. This is, this, is, this, is, this is my right. This is what I deserve. Can become an idol. Good things. Great things. I, I love my vacations. Can become an idol. Spending, spending money. What dominates my Amazon account or credit cards? It can be very revealing to go back and look at the list. That, that, that orders section under Amazon, you ever, ever look at that? Getting money. Am I consumed by financial worries or financial growth because idolatry is an equal opportunity sin, regardless of your financial status? It can be that you are so focused because you don't have money or you're so focused because your money is growing. Sometimes it goes back and forth if there's a recession, right? Relationships can be an idol. Who do I expect to meet my emotional or practical needs? It's all, it's all on, it's all on, boy, I just, I need this person. Image. Am I obsessed with how I look or how others perceive me? So that can be physical appearance things, it could just be, you know, my reputation, respect. I just, I just got to have people who think I'm amazing. Politics can be an idol. Am I trusting in political victories to fix America? We all feel that one, right? This, if only, in a sense, all of these, all these categories could, could kind of be captured with this sense, if only what? Had approval, had more money, had, yeah. Had the political victories. Health, do I obsess about my health or my view of health? So it can either be, you know, that I'm so, I'm so, so continually worrying and researching or that I think I've found the elixir of life, and if you did what I do, you'll live to be 450 years old. Activities, good things. What hobby, sport, or other activity consumes my mind? Good things to an extreme are essentially idols because they've overtaken our thoughts and our minds. Jimmy Needham, in a, in a song summarize this by saying anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol if only 
Ahaz could have learned from his son since he didn't learn from his father. But actually it was Hezekiah who learned from the bad example of his dad Ahaz. Glance, go ahead a couple pages, 2 Kings 18, verse 5. 2 Kings 18, verses 5 to 7, getting ahead a little bit. Instead of what Ahaz did, this is what his son did. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to, to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Instead of paying tribute, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From Watchtower to Fortified City, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories. What a difference it makes who you trust. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are... We are so torn between what we know of you and your word, maybe even from examples of faith in our family or our church, and yet what is all around us and appealing to us and asking us to trust in this, in that, or him or her. Oh God, give us such a devotion to your word and to yourself that it becomes spiritually instinctive for us to call out to you because you are familiar and you have been close and because we have been seeking to know you and we've been seeking to know your word that it becomes our, our first call to go to you. Lord, you are faithful. You're faithful in the, in the good times. You're faithful in the hard stuff. And so we want to trust you in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.